informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us as we wrap up another week, and we hope you are safe and well and appreciate you letting us be part of your day. We have quite a few things to go over today. We're going to talk with Professor Dermot Hayes from Iowa State University, Professor of Economics and Finance. Uh, we're going to talk about the pork industry issues and what's going on there. And, you know, we sometimes we forget African swine fever is still a threat, so we need to keep an eye on that. He's done some interesting uh, research on what would happen if African swine fever gets into the United States, so we'll look at that as well. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, is going to join us to talk about how COVID-19 is impacting the potato industry. And certainly, when you think about it, probably not eating as many French fries, are we, now as we were before this? A lot of impacts being felt. And how about government assistance? How much will that help? We'll talk about that with Cam Quarles a little bit later on in the program. But we're going to start things off by talking with Chuck Connor, President and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Chuck, thanks for joining us and hope you are well. I'm doing well, Mike, and I hope you uh, are too. Yes, indeed. And I want to talk about the ag labor situation. Uh, President Trump moving to restrict immigration in the United States. I know it's you and many others in agriculture have stressed the importance of making sure we can still get ag workers into the country. Yeah, we have, Mike, and this has been an ongoing battle, as you know. Uh, we had some dust-ups when the COVID-19 virus first came upon us, and many of our consulate offices were closed, and we were having you know, trouble uh, processing workers across the border. Uh, we navigated that successfully, uh, but now we're, we're at a, a stage where the president is trying to restrict uh, immigrants in order to uh, protect you know, jobs for unemployed Americans. Uh, we just have to continue to make the case, though, to anyone who will listen that these jobs on our farms and ranches are, are jobs that generally speaking americans will not do and we do rely upon foreign labor to perform these functions and are going to need those uh, now really more than ever as we're uh, navigating the throes of this crisis well you touched on something there i want to get into um i heard on a, a national newscast the other day on tv someone going off on on this saying that hey we got people unemployed more than ever now in this country and shouldn't be bringing in workers from other countries but you hit upon it and unless something has changed because of COVID-19 and people seriously uh, uh, willing to look at jobs they wouldn't have before uh, what we found before this is people in this country didn't want these jobs many of them and wouldn't take them no matter what the pay and uh, even if they were all of a sudden willing to uh, you got a training issue there in some cases uh, that would have to be overcome, a learning curve. So uh, that's why this is so critical in an industry, in some of these industries in agriculture that are so time sensitive. Well, that's exactly right, Mike. You know, we, we've been battling this for 30 years, really since uh, the mid-1980s. And, you know, study after study and, and evidence after evidence does confirm that no matter what the economic circumstances, whether it's COVID-19 today, whether it was the uh, market crash of 2008, you know, the mid-1980s crisis, whatever the case, people in the United States will not perform these labor functions. 
And, and again, there, there's been absolutely no evidence ever presented to the contrary of this. You know, if there are people out there that say, hey, I'm unemployed and, you know, why are we bringing in these workers? I, I would encourage you to apply because I would remind you, Mike, that the rules of law require farmers to post and make these jobs available to Americans before they can bring in the foreign workers. So, you know, we, we've thought about this, and that, that's in the law. So if anybody wants to perform this function, uh, there would be, a, uh, you know, many, many willing um, farmers uh, ready to employ them. The key, though, of course, as you've identified, is timeliness here. We're in the throes of spring work, um, jobs to be done in a timely way in order to ensure that we have a stable food supply, and that's, you know, been one of the great promises for us through this whole crisis is, People are still being fed and fed pretty well, and that, that's a remarkable thing. We don't want to screw that up. In order for that not to happen, we need to train labor in a timely way, and, and the, the foreign guest worker program is critical, fundamental to that. Chuck, uh, finally, uh, as president and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives, from your perspective and your your vast background in in many areas of agriculture, over the years, what are your thoughts on what's happening right now with COVID-19 and its impact on agriculture? Well, Mike, it's a mess, and there, there's no other way to describe it. Uh, again, I've identified the good news, and that is, uh, you know, farmers are stepping up. Uh, we're getting a crop planted uh, this spring, despite you know all the crazy circumstances that exist from state to state out there. For the most part, spring planting is going as normal, and that normal is not a word you use today, but, but it is. And that's going to ensure that, you know, we've got food, uh, we've got feed, uh, and, you know, that's an important step to the security we need to overcome this crisis. And within that, there's obviously huge problems, uh, problems with our meat processing sector, issues that we're just going to have to work through almost on a case-by-case basis. The federal government is going to be there to provide a lot of help as they should, you know, during these kind of times of a crisis that has caused major problems that are not to the producer's you know, fault at all in this circumstance. So we're going to be there to provide a lot of help to and get through this. But, you know, this is, this is American agriculture. These are family farmers, and they've weathered a lot of storms, every one of them. And, and we feel confident they will weather this storm, too. All right, Chuck, thanks for being with us. And uh, stay safe, and we'll stay in touch yep. with you. Thank you. My best to you, Mike. Take care. Uh, Chuck Connor, President and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. And uh, we apologize, uh, the, the cell signal not always the best. It's one of the things we're going through here with COVID-19. You're, you're seeing it, hearing it uh, throughout the media, of course, whether you're watching on TV or listening on, on radio shows. Uh, we're all dealing with distancing and people away from offices and uh uh, whether it's a cell phone or Skype or whatever it might be, the technology, while it's a good thing we have it, and it's certainly very important and it's helping a lot, uh, it has its limitations and uh, audio quality is not always uh, the best, so uh, we apologize for that. But uh, Chuck Connor making a, a good point, I think, because uh, some people are wondering, well, why would we let in foreign workers when there are so many now unemployed in this country? But as Chuck pointed out, in agriculture, these jobs that uh, 
need to be filled were offered to U.S. citizens first before uh, the uh, immigrant workers. And in many, many cases, the vast majority of cases, uh, American workers did not want those jobs. And maybe that changes now because of the unemployment situation, maybe not. But uh, uh, these jobs need to be filled and they're vital to our food production uh, system. And uh, those workers are very much needed. All right. Coming up next. These issues, the challenges, the crisis in the pork industry, if you will. And uh, it could get worse if we were to get African swine fever. We're going to talk about that with Professor Dermot Hayes from Iowa State University. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Oftentimes, when we are talking with uh, folks with the National Pork Producers Council, they will refer to research being done by Dr. Dermot Hayes at Iowa State University. And uh, so we're very happy to have him with us now to talk firsthand about some of the uh, issues facing the pork industry, the financial strain on the industry. Uh, Professor Hayes, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. Good morning, Mike. Nice to be with uh, let's, you. Yeah, let's talk about, uh, we've got a lot of things to kind of get into here, but let's get your assessment of where the pork industry is at now. We, we've heard it called a crisis situation uh, I've I've asked uh, whether or not it compares to the late '90s. What what are your thoughts on where we're at and how it does compare to that crisis? I I was at Iowa State back in 1998, and uh, hog price uh, we had backup at packing plants, and hogs were in surplus, and uh, prices fell to close to zero. Um, and that's exactly where we are now. It's amazingly similar. Uh, we lost a whole generation of pork producers back then, and uh, unless something changes, we're going to lose a lot of producers now. Yeah, we saw the whole industry, the structure of the pork industry change after that crisis in late in the late '90s. Do you see something similar happening moving forward now? Yeah, what happened then was the the uh, mid-sized producers went bankrupt, and uh, those buildings re- continued in use. It's just that they were bought out by uh, larger producers. So we had an incredible consolidation, and uh, we did lose some huge producers too. It's not just the mid-sized ones that that are at risk right now. And uh, the whole industry is in financial difficulty and uh, we will see consolidation. We're probably going to need money from some other organization like a hedge fund or something to, to buy up the buildings uh, on, at pennies on the dollar. Hmm. So when we look at the situation now, I mean, not only are prices down, but with plants closing down, producers have nowhere to go with their hogs. 
That, that's exactly right. There are more hogs, more uh, market hogs than the plants can can handle. And uh, there are two ways to deal with that. One is to put the market hogs on a kind of a maintenance diet and then euthanize the young pigs. Or some producers may have to to euthanize the market-ready hogs, and, and um, that is going to have a... There are going to be problems in getting rid of those carcasses. We were kind of tied on, on space anyway, right, in these plants uh, before this happened. Last September, the plants started to hit capacity, uh, not necessarily because there weren't enough plants, but there wasn't enough labor. And uh, that kind of separated the, the, the carcass price from the, the negotiated price. Uh, and the carcass price was showing some strength because of good exports, but the, the, the negotiated price was not because, uh, we had, again, we had slightly more hogs back then than we had packing plant capacity. Now we've got a lot more hogs than we have capacity. You just touched on something we were talking about in our previous segment, the importance of labor. And uh, that was a crucial issue in this uh, to begin with. And now we're seeing a lot of these workers that we do have uh, sick, uh, testing positive for the virus. Right. Uh, I I can speak about Iowa. Uh, We've sent the the state has sent uh, thousands of kits out to the plants. And uh, I think this would happen with any portion of the population and but we're, we're testing more at the plants and we're finding more positive cases there not necessarily because they're more likely to have it but because we're more likely to be testing them and uh, we had a plant uh, yesterday that where they detected um, positive cases and none of the workers actually knew they were sick we're talking with dr dermot hayes from iowa state university uh, there are estimates out there of billions of dollars lost coming for the pork industry. Do you, have you put a, uh, a, any uh, a pencil to it, any numbers that you're projecting on potential losses here? So Steve Meyer and I, Dr. Steve Meyer and I looked at what happened to the futures prices for hogs to be delivered after March 10th for the rest of the year. And uh, they started to collapse in March 10th, and that decline continued for a full month. And so we took that month and said, okay, how much destruction how much value destruction has there been because of the virus and it was uh, almost five billion dollars five billion dollars yeah and 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 really we don't know right because there's so much uncertainty still around this we don't know Uh, even back in march 10th uh, we didn't know that plants were going to close but the people who trade the futures they have to factor in probabilities and they were doing that back even as early as mid-march they could see that there was a disaster on the horizon and so that's when prices started to fall and and i've just got to trust in the experts who trade in that market to factor those probabilities correctly before covid19 we were concerned about african swine fever that hasn't gone away that concern that that threat now fortunately we've been able to keep it out of the united states but you've done some research uh kind of warning us what would happen if african swine fever gets into this country yeah uh so we we export 25 to 30 percent of our pork uh, probably more right now because china is, is buying so much of it um it, it, it turns out that if, if if we get the disease, countries like China that have the disease will refuse to buy our product. Uh, so we, we would end up with 25 to 30% more pork than is needed. And one way to get rid of that product is to cut the retail price of pork so Americans eat it. And that requires huge drops at the farm level. Now, by coincidence, uh, what we predicted would happen to farm level prices if we get African swine fever is exactly what has happened uh, because of the virus, the, the uh, coronavirus. Yeah, and as bad as it is now, if you're thinking, 
How could it get worse? Well, African swine fever could make it worse. It, it could. Uh, it could. We, it's, it's bad enough right now, but if we lose um, 20 to 30, 30% of our customers, it, it could get a lot worse. So when you look at this overall, I mean, wow, we came into this year with so much optimism that uh, you know we were going to really increase exports and things would really rebound. Now everything's turned upside down. Right. We... The export picture began to look really good last September. We we started a, we got back into the Japanese market. We got back into Mexico. We had potential for huge orders out of China. We had the Phase One deal. Uh, we if there are two things that are holding up us up right now. One is just the ability to get animals through the plant so we can export the meat. And secondly, we, we're still facing uh, duties in, in China because we have duties on their metals. And so we would be shipping a lot more to China if we didn't have that metal duty. And the, the, the beauty of the China trade is that it's carcass meat. They, don't, they, they want the bones in, inside the product so we can be a lot, a lot more economical with scarce labor if we can send uh, carcasses to China rather than try and box it uh, here. It kind of shows us how much we take for granted. We spent all of last year uh, in a trade war with China and trying to get that worked out. We finally get the phase one trade deal. But we almost we overlooked or took for granted our ability to uh, run animals through the system and be able to get that product ready to ship to another country. So now we have a trade deal, but we don't have uh, the ability because of COVID-19 to move the product. Yeah, it's it's making me realize how efficient and uh, just in time the the whole meat uh, the whole food distribution system is. It, it's a phenomenal machine, but it's completely gummed up now, all the way from retailers back to the people who transport the product or the people who distribute the product. Everybody's having labor problems, and uh, what should be the world's most efficient system is just uh, it's, it's it's a fraction of what it could be. Yeah, it's great when it works. Unfortunately, it's worked for quite a while, but we're seeing uh, this problem and the lack of flexibility in some cases. We were so geared to specific markets like food service, like restaurants, and you lose that, it's hard to make a shift there, too. Right. We were the U.S. was using about 25 percent of its pork in food service, and that's a it's a different packaging requirement. It, for instance, the bacon comes in 15 or pound packs are bigger, and a lot of those packages have uh, not for retail sales stamped on them. So it's going to take a while to get that food repurposed. Uh, I personally think it will, or it will go to food banks. I, I don't think it'll be wasted, uh, but. But what has happened is the, the coolers at the plants are filled up with product that should have gone to retailers and restaurants. And it turns out Americans are more likely to eat a pork patty or a big slice of bacon if they're staying at a hotel than they are if they eat at home. So there's been a net decline in, in demand for pork in general. Makes me wonder if we'll see some changes in that system moving forward, or do we go back the way we were? <laughs> I wish I knew. I, your guess is as good as mine on that. Yeah, gonna uh, be a, yeah a, I think we'll build in a little I think we'll build in a little bit more surplus labor everywhere. I think that that's been the lesson here. We were so efficient that just losing you know, 10% of the workforce caused a big slowdown in the plants. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what lessons are learned from COVID-19 and what do we uh, do about that. I mean, do we make some changes and prepare better for these kind of things? It's hard to prepare for something you've never seen before, but uh, maybe we'll learn some of those lessons and be a little more prepared for uh similar situations moving forward hopefully nothing like this again but you never know uh dr hayes thank you so much for being with us it's good to have you on and uh, we hope to talk again soon stay safe thanks mike you too all right bye now uh, dermot hayes professor of economics and finance at iowa state university 
Well, another area of agriculture, the potato industry, been hard hit by COVID-19. We'll talk with the CEO of the National Potato Council about what's happening for potato growers and how much government assistance is helping them. Wow, I guess we need to, as we go through these drive throughs maybe get an extra bag of fries or something to help out. We'll talk about that next on AOA. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Another sector of agriculture really hurting from COVID-19, the potato industry. Joining us now is the CEO of the National Potato Council, Cam Quarles. Cam, thanks for joining us and hope you are well. Mike, I am. Good to talk to you again and and hope you are too. I said before the break, um, Perhaps as we go through our drive-through lanes now, maybe we need to grab that extra bag of fries because uh, I have to believe demand uh, for potatoes is really hurting during this uh, crisis. Yeah, it really is, Mike. We, our industry, as so many others did, uh, when the food service channel shut down, it was just like hitting a brick wall. And so the, the ugly part of this is, um, the the all of those potatoes that were going to process products, frozen fries, as you identified, and other things, they had no home to go to. Uh, no customers were out there. Um, the big institutions that that we all rely on in food service were gone, and so that that caused stocks to build up. The potato processors did the rational thing and started. Uh, either shuttering their plants or reducing their volumes, and that caused all those storage potatoes from the 2019 crop to start backing up. Um, the the big challenge that we have now, Mike, is we, we've got to deal with that oversupply of the 2019 crop, but now you've also got growers who are out planting right now in certain parts of the country, they're they're already in the ground. A lot of them are are this is their their planting window, and they they are uncertain uh, if they have if they're planting under contract. Are, will their customer be there at the end of the year? Uh, increasingly, it is likely that they will they will not be there just because the the um, the demand is not is not out there, and so folks are trying to really. Uh, uh, ration things down. Um, we think that USDA can play a really key role in, in writing this supply demand imbalance, but I tell you what, they've got to do it quick. They, um, the, the, the clock is ticking and growers options are narrowing with every passing day. What would you like to see USDA do? Um, so the, the, program that they rolled out last Friday um, was a good start, and they, uh, you know, it, they, they, we, we all knew the resources were not going to be there. Um, this is, I think everybody viewed it as really a down payment. Um, their priority 
uh, what they're focusing on is getting product to food banks, which is incredibly important, and that absolutely needs to be the first place that all of these oversupplied products go. However, they can't stop there. Um, they really need to look at aggressively buying, clearing out um, for our industry for potatoes, diverting uh, this oversupply into livestock feed, um, uh, other just pure product diversion um, that gets it out of this pipeline. They've also got to consider on the other end of the pipeline buying some of these oversupply of frozen potato products in order to get the 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 supply at both ends down and, and get back to some type of rational balance. USDA has got the ability to do that. Um, they, they just, uh, I, I think they've, they've um, that, that needs to be the next step in this process, and the clock's really ticking. We're talking with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam, we're seeing various sectors of agriculture make estimates. Uh, the pork industry estimating a loss of $5 billion. I think the beef industry was like $13.5 billion. Have you made those kind of projections in the potato industry? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're in the middle of this crisis right now, uh, Mike. So I, I think everybody, we're kind of standing at the edge of a well looking down, and we're not quite sure where the bottom is. But just you know, back of the envelope math for our industry, we're a four billion dollar a year industry. If you shut us down for a quarter, that's a that's a billion dollars. We're we're uh, uh, overwhelmingly facing food service. So about six sixty percent of our overall business is the food service space. Um, so direct impact to our industry. If you're down for a quarter in the 600 to 700 million dollar range it clearly doesn't include the impact to all the secondary businesses the truckers the um the, the, the whole supply chain that feeds potatoes um in terms of backed up supply this is the largest backup that we have seen since 1987. um so it's it's really uh you know a uh, uh, product that's piling up is just uh, it's really eye-popping now if I heard you correctly you said 60% of your business the potato business going to food service so uh, that's the area that's for all intents and purposes shut down although I mean I mentioned earlier we still drive through at some of our fast food restaurants and things like that but I mean basically you're shutting down your biggest market and I can't imagine that even though we're shifting more to retail and people buying more at the grocery store and eating at home, that's probably not making up for what you've lost then in that uh, in the uh, food service sector. No, it's really not. And you know, one of the other big challenges, Mike, I think this is all um, brought really into focus how complex our supply chain is. Uh, when everything's working correctly, um, the the processes that we have in place to feed food service as well as retail, um, they work incredibly well and deliver product uh, very efficiently. But the the problem is those those channels are set up to serve those specific areas. When when one breaks down, trying to jump to the other channel, it, it it's very difficult to do. From uh, packaging to storage to all of these all of these logistical challenges, it's it, it's really opened people's eyes to how kind of stovepipe the two the two um, channels really are. So, 
anything that we could do to move into retail or to move product to food banks, we're, we're doing that right now. But, you know, the over, overwhelming um, uh, oversupply is just, uh, it's, it, it, it's really something to grapple with. And, you know, really, the, the solution is that USDA, you know, USDA came in and mandated you're not going to have any customers in food service for good medical reason, obviously. But USDA, the federal government, really need, now needs to become that customer for a period of time until we can get this righted. If they don't, Mike, we're looking at growers who are going to be impacted. They're planting right now. They'll harvest in October and store potatoes for for an entire year. We'll be dealing with this well into fall or winter of 2021 at a minimum. Wow. What is the how many, the shelf life, so to speak? How long can you store potatoes before you they go bad on you? And, you know, typically they're they're harvesting September, October. You got to be out of the ground um, uh, before Halloween, and then they'll store those potatoes and send them off to processing facilities um, for the better part of an entire year. So they'll they'll be they'll be kind of running to the end in, in August, September, and then you're ready for harvest, and your storage facilities are ready to accept new new product. Um, the the processors are, you know, clearly they're seeing this lack of demand, and so they're going to stretch those storage stocks longer, and that just hammers anybody who's who's growing um, on contract uh, trying to plant a 2020 crop. So in, in like, pork and beef, dairy, we're seeing as processing plants shut down because of COVID-19, that's backing up the chain. In your case, is it more the loss of demand, or are you dealing with any shutdowns or slowdowns at the processing level uh, from COVID-19 and workers? Um, we that, that has not become a huge issue yet. Obviously, everybody is braced for those type, and there, there have been facilities that have had to go down for, for a couple of days. We understand because they've gotten some potentially positive cases and they were erring on the side of caution. Um, it, it, it hasn't reached the level that we've seen in other commodities, but I think across American agriculture, everyone is very is very concerned about that, both for for the the present time as well as you know, as we look to to start reopening and and hopefully cranking up demand somewhat. We've got to grapple with all of those um, physical distancing and, uh, personal protective equipment, all those issues, um, uh, folks are really focusing on it. I keep mentioning this, but the, so many lessons to be learned from this. One of them is how much we took for granted and maybe did not fully appreciate our, our supply chain system. Great when it works, how efficient it was, and, but it was so specific to particular markets and, uh, we've seen there may not be a lot of flexibility in some cases, and you shut off demand. It's going to sh- it's going to stop any system. That's you. That is exactly right. And um, you know, even though we're in the industry and dealing with it every day, it's it's just kind of awe inspiring when you see it shut shut down. And it really is a reminder of all of these folks, all of these mechanisms that have been stood up. It's it's really impressive when it's when it's working right, and it's um, it's really eye opening when 
when you get a, a shutdown in demand like this. I think one of the one of the things that we've been trying to trying to grapple with, Mike, and you know your your show and and other folks who focus on this are, are incredibly helpful in doing this. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of folks who don't deal in agriculture, they're saying, well, well, why can't you turn on a dime and move millions of pounds of potatoes into food banks? Well, uh, that a lot of those food banks, you, you've got to deal with storage issues, logistical right. issues. They're not set up to deal with those volumes, so it's just a huge challenge. Yes, it is. Cam, thank you so much for being with us. Stay safe, all right? You too. Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, joining us here on AOA. Stay with us. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to Adams on Agriculture. Every planting season has its share of unknowns. This year, probably more than most with what's going on in the world with COVID-19. There are obviously many things outside of a farmer's control, but there are some things that farmers can do to make sure the season goes as close to plan as possible. Today we're talking with Chad Christensen, a premium diesel expert from CHS's Cinex brand, to talk about how something as simple as the fuel you use can help keep you on track this spring. Chad, thanks for joining us. Let's talk about this, why risk management with fuel is such an important part of the spring planning season. Sure. I, I think it's important, you know, all year round, but, but really especially in the spring here, to get started off right, uh, with the planting season and really that this planting season lays the foundation for the rest of the year you know there's so many unknowns out there in agriculture whether it be the shifting markets uh, the unpredictable weather and, and so that's really why farmers need to control what they can control and that's getting the equipment ready and then using a premium diesel rather than a typical number two i mean there's there's few things that impact your operation more directly than the health of your equipment well, let's talk about that. Uh, what's risky about using just any number two diesel? Well, number two has been around a long time with, with little modifications, if any. I mean, they, they have reduced the sulfur levels in there, but a number two contains no fuel additives that protect your machine. And with all the engine modifications uh, and the tighter tolerances to reduce the emissions, and over time, using a number two can really gunk up those fuel lines and, and experience wear and corrosion. Uh, you're going to get those pumps and injector tips dirty, and, and that's going to lead to those uneven spray patterns and even fouled injectors. And left unattended, you're going to see that fuel economy drop, your power drop, and then, you know, even worse, you're going to see that unplanned downtime down the road. Then how does a premium diesel manage that risk? Well, I, I think a premium diesel fuel like Ruby Field Master and Cenex Roadmaster XL, 
they protect your equipment in, in ways that a standard number two can't. And a few of the examples are, you know, you're going to have that better lubricity. As I said, when they stripped out that sulfur, um, that went away with a lot of your lubricity also. And so we put that back in there. It's going to help uh, reduce the wear on your pumps, your fuel injector components, and, and reducing that downtime. And then we've got our aggressive detergents. Um, like I said, those, those machines today have tight tolerances, and, and that debris, uh, you know, if left untreated, can cause that downtime. And then our corrosion inhibitor, it's just going to pre- prevent rust from building up and, uh, and lead you to, to have a more successful springtime. Let's talk about one of the ways uh, farmers can uh, certainly maximize time this spring. That would be uh, stocking up on, on fuel. How, how does buying fuel in bulk benefit a farmer? Well, I think, I think really the, the question is, are they right-sized? And, and, a, and a farmer, you know, he probably already has tanks on his, in his yard for gas and diesel, but, but really make sure, make sure those tanks are the right size for your operation. And, and that allows you to secure your supply you know, um, when, when fuel isn't at the peak demand of spring, I mean, it lets you do it a little bit earlier, um, decreases those transportation costs. So your fuel provider is making less trips um, out to your farm, you know, costing you less. And then, and then it allows you to buy at the best price. So, you know, you've got a little bit more of that flexibility. Um, is a little bit different this year, you know, in what we've seen with the market, but you know, if you can get uh, a right size tank and, and fill up, you know, when those prices are right, um, that's going to go a long way. And then the efficiency, uh, like I said, the more time you fill, you spend in the field, the better for you. So get those tanks right sized. Certainly there are some good pricing opportunities this spring. Uh, what should farmers keep in mind when storing diesel? Well, I would I would recommend using a premium diesel fuel like Ruby Fieldmaster, and, and that's going to extend that diesel life. You know, typically we see uh, the 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 shelf life around six to twelve months when it's stored properly. Um, you want to make sure that uh, you're keeping those tanks clean and away from any low lying areas where water, dirt, and grime can collect. Um, and it's important to keep all your vents clean all your uh, screen pumps um, and your drains and keep those closed uh, and make sure you're, you're performing regular maintenance on there. Most of the problems that we see, you know, in the, in the diesel fuel world revolve around uh, moisture. And so that's really what we want to uh, keep in mind when we're storing a diesel fuel. Does it differ depending on what kind of fuel you're putting in bulk storage? Do you have to do different things with different fuels? Well, absolutely. I mean, if you're running a if you're running a, a number two diesel that's got uh, maybe a little bit of bio in it, you want to make sure um, you know that you're running a, a Cenex premium diesel fuel. Uh, that way, we have that storage stabilizer in there, and it's just going to extend the life of that diesel fuel. So uh, that's what I would really suggest, Um, you know, and and then also our diesel fuel has a demulsifier in it. So it's going to push if anywhere along that chain, if it gets water in there, um, our demulsifier is going to push that water right to the bottom. So those producers can drain that off their tank and not put it into their expensive equipment. And then, like I mentioned, uh, the storage stabilizer that we have, it it is going to extend the life of that fuel. 
um, as soon as the fuel leaves the refinery, really it's starting to see that degradation and that breakdown. So using a premium diesel fuel like Ruby Fieldmaster is going to extend that fuel's life, keep that fuel breakdown at a minimum. And then our corrosion inhibitor is going to act right in the, in the diesel fuel tank. And so that's going to keep the preventing or keep, keep the rust from forming on the inside of that tank also. All that certainly helps and uh, is part of your management and makes you more efficient in this, this spring and really throughout the year. Uh, Chad, finally, what would you say to farmers that are interested in learning more? Yeah, I'd say reach out to your local Cenex Premium Diesel dealer uh, or visit Cenex.com uh, for additional details. Yeah, make those good uh, fuel decisions. That's Chad Christensen, a premium diesel expert from CHS's Synex brand. Chad, thanks for being with us. Diesel comes with a more complete additive yeah, package for, me, for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines.